All right, if you got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and uh, the events that we read about in Acts chapter 4 happen, of course, on the heels of what we read in chapter 3. And the significant event in chapter 3 was the healing of a man who was uh, a lame man, healed by Peter and John. And uh, that event... What took place in chapter 3, the healing of this lame man and their subsequent preaching about it, the sign and the sermon, led to the very first instance of opposition and persecution directed towards the church. Now, we saw last week that Peter and John spent a night in prison as a direct result of their preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Today, we're looking not so much about what happened to them But we're looking at their response in the face of the opposition they faced. So we're going to read the passage. We're in Acts 4. We're looking at verses 13 to 22 this morning. This is God's word, and this is what it says to us. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, someone once said that a Christian is a lot like a tea bag. Uh, you don't really know what you've got until you add some hot water. And I know that's a, a bit of a cliche, but that is kind of what we see in this passage. Peter and John find themselves in hot water. And we get to see what is produced when that hot water is added. Now, if we were to describe their response in a single word, I think the word boldness would be the right word. Verse 13 begins by saying, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Uh, That word boldness is used once in these verses. It's going to be used two more times in the verses we're going to look at next week and then several more times through these early chapters in the book of Acts. But even in this chapter, verse 29 gives us the content of their prayer after they were released, and it says this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 31 then describes their activity like this. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Now, before we get into the specific insights from these verses, I just want to briefly say something about boldness or courage or fortitude. Courage is and ought to be one of the defining marks of a Christian. The very first thing that struck these men as they interrogated Peter and John was their boldness. In the midst of a hostile context, they unabashedly spoke about Jesus and they unashamedly spoke about sin. That kind of boldness, that kind of courage is in short supply today. I was encouraged by a couple of G.K. Chesterton quotes regarding courage. He said this, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Now, that is the kind of courage, the kind of boldness that Peter and John showed here. They were well aware that the religious leaders who were interrogating them, interrogating them at that moment were the same ones who had decreed that Jesus ought to be crucified. But they spoke anyway. Chesterton went on to say this about courage. He said, He that will lose his life, the same shall save it, is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed in an alpine guide or a drill book. A man cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. That is the kind of courage that is in short supply today. And the reason I am laying stress on this, the reason I'm saying we need desperately this kind of courage is because the world has changed. You know, there was a time not that many years ago when declaring yourself to be a Christian might have even meant, you know, some applause from the world around you. Lots of people would have concluded from that, oh, you must be a person of strong moral character. You must have good values. You're someone we can trust. Now, maybe they would have thought, you know, you're, you're, you're a little bit prudish or maybe a little bit judgmental, but that's about as far as the criticism would have gone. Today, Declaring your Christian faith might be a conversation stopper. In lots of contexts, the, the, the person might immediately conclude, well, that must mean you're repressive, you're bigoted, you're misogynistic, you're homophobic. And because of that kind of pressure, we can easily withdraw to just a private faith, right? This is just between me and God. I don't want to jeopardize any relationships. I don't want to jeopardize any you know, possible contracts or promotions, and so we take our light and we just hide it away. Now, just to clarify, when I talk about boldness and courage, I'm not talking about going and looking for a fight. When you read through the sermons in the book of Acts, you will find there is a consistent combination of bridge building 
and boldness. So you can see it in Acts chapter 19. Paul goes into the city of Ephesus, and when he preaches there, he does that very thing. He, he builds some bridges with the people, and he also preaches about Jesus boldly. You can see it in Acts 22 when Paul is in Jerusalem, and what he does is he builds some bridges with the people, and he also preaches about Jesus boldly. Now, I'm focusing on the courage or the boldness part today because that's what we see in this passage before us. So as we make our way through this passage, I want to direct your attention to three truths that we discover here. The first one is that impact doesn't come from pedigree or position, but from proximity to Jesus. So look again at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So Peter and John stand in the middle of this group of religious experts and they astound them. It says when they finished speaking, the group interrogating them was astonished. Now, the group they were standing for was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. It was made up of 71 men, sort of the best and the brightest of religious leaders and scholars. They went to the best rabbinical schools. They had letters behind their names. These guys were a big deal. And part of the reason they were astonished is because Peter and John were fishermen. They were uneducated, common men. How is it that these simpletons possess such clear understanding and boldness? And the religious leaders made the mistake that we often make. We size people up on the basis of their appearance or on the basis of their pedigree or their position. You know, there was a a video from ranking that went viral back in 2021 and then again a couple of weeks ago that's when it showed up on my feed and I found it fascinating the video is about what happens when a group of strangers tries to rank each other's intelligence based on external factors the video has you know eight million views so there's a chance maybe you've seen it but there are six people in this video And they take turns introducing themselves. They state their name. They state their level of education. They state what their current employment situation is. And then they take turns ranking each other's level of intelligence based on what they've seen and heard. You know, you're number one or you're number six. And there are some seemingly smart people in the group. Five of the six are university graduates. One of them graduated from Yale and works in finance. Another one graduated from Harvard who works in consulting. One of the six is a 30-year-old woman with a PhD who works in biotech. Now, she's the smuggest one of the bunch. I mean, you, you can tell. She probably thinks she's always the smartest person in the room. And then there was also a 21-year-old high school graduate who works for the Marine Corps. The five university graduates all ranked the 21-year-old Marine Corps guy at the bottom of the pile, right? I mean, he's definitely going to be the least intelligent because of his age and because he's in the army. I mean, who, who makes that as a career choice, right? Can't be that smart. Then, 
and they didn't know this was going to happen, they take an IQ test. The PhD lady comes in with a score of 112. Number six. The Marine kid gets a score of 131, not first place, but only five points behind the Harvard graduate. And that video reveals lots of things. Actually, the comments are so entertaining. That's just a side note, but anyway. One of the things it reveals is the way people mistakenly associate intelligence with education level. This is what I mean by saying that our impact doesn't come from pedigree or position. Peter and John were uneducated, ordinary, common men. Now, uneducated doesn't mean illiterate. It means unlettered. They didn't have the formal training of these religious elites. But when these religious leaders encounter them in Acts chapter 4, it says they couldn't refute anything they had to say. But notice what else they observed. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So what does that mean exactly? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Well, it it could just mean that they recognized them as having been with Jesus in the same way that the servant girl recognized that Peter had been with Jesus when she saw him in the courtyard after Jesus was arrested. You, many of you know that story, right? It's when Peter denies Jesus. So in Matthew 26, we read, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. So maybe it just means that, but I don't think so. I think it means something far more profound. And we might be helped by going back to what Mark tells us about the way Jesus called his first disciples. Listen to this verse from Mark chapter 3. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So where did Peter and John learn what they learned about the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. Well, they learned it from having been with Jesus. Where did they develop the courage to face opposition head-on with calmness and grace? They learned it from having been with Jesus. And I would just say this is what is always true of Jesus' followers. The impression we make is not based on our human credentials. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He, he knows how to encourage a guy, right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's who we are. Not many of us are of noble birth. Not many of us are wise according to worldly standards. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but there, is in some, but there is something important for us to learn from what we read here in Acts 4. I mean, there are some people when, you know, you spend time with them, you can't help but come away from a meeting or time like that and think, man, that's a person who knows Jesus. I mean, they, they have a living relationship with him. There's just some people that radiate the grace and love of Jesus. They might not have a seminary degree. They might not have any formal Bible training, but they know his word and they live by it. It comes out in their conversation. It comes out in their interactions with other people. You you look at them and say, man, they've been with Jesus. Now, I know we usually pray at the beginning of a sermon or at the end of a sermon, but I I, want to stop mid-sermon, and just pray for us as a church that this would be true of us. So let's pray. Lord, we do pray that the thing that would be most evident about us as your followers is not our pedigree, not our level of education, not our social status or standing, but that we've been with you that the thing that defines our life is we know you and love you and know we're loved by you. We pray that would be true. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Now remember the context here, right? The context is opposition. So what are we supposed to look like when facing opposition? What does faith under fire look like? What happens when hot water gets added to our lives. There's a couple of verses in the New Testament that I think highlight what it's supposed to look like. In the book of Titus, we read this. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent might be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. How do you silence the opponents? Well, you demonstrate you've been with Jesus. Maybe even more directly, Peter himself would later write this, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Our greatest impact in this world will not come because of our pedigree, or because of our position, it will come because of our proximity to Jesus, our relationship with him. Second thing we learn here is that belief is not ultimately about seeing or hearing, but a matter of the heart. And this is what we see in verses 14 to 17. Those verses say, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, 
They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. The summary of those verses is that they could not deny it, but they would not acknowledge it. Now, I've stated this in terms of belief not ultimately being about seeing or hearing, and I put it that way because we're all familiar with the expression seeing is believing. And we all get that. I mean, we're not just going to believe something because someone says it. We need some evidence for ourselves. That is not a a bad posture to have. But notice that actually wasn't the posture of these religious leaders. Their posture was, look, we're not going to believe this even when there is compelling evidence standing in front of us. I mean, they see the formerly lame man standing before them. Everyone knows this guy. He's been begging at the gate of the temple for years, for his whole life. He's 40 years old. They say it can't be denied that a notable sign was performed among them, but they can't acknowledge it. Why not? Because it will mean admitting that they were wrong about Jesus, and they are not prepared to do that. And what I'm trying to get at here is that the root cause of unbelief is often something other than a lack of evidence. Now, Jesus was a master at exposing this kind of thing in people. There's a short passage in Matthew chapter 11 where we can see his brilliance as a teacher on full display. And there we read this. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John, that's John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Jesus captures the fickle nature of people with a short proverb. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. On the surface of it, that proverb simply demonstrates that some people are impossible to please. And you know exactly the kind of people I'm talking about, right? I mean, all winter long, they complain it's too cold. And when summer comes, they immediately complain it's too hot. Some people are impossible to please. They can find a dark cloud in every silver lining. Jesus describes children who are like that in these verses. The scene that Jesus describes here is one that children of any generation could relate to. Jesus says, look, these people are like children playing in the marketplace. Now, in the ancient world, you would go to the marketplace every day. You'd go either to to buy something or to sell something, and you'd often bring your children along with you. The parents then are busy shopping, and the kids are bored. Does Does that sound familiar to anyone? Now, in Jesus' description, there's two groups of kids, right? One group is playing. They're inviting the others to come and join them in their games. They get out the flute, and they say, hey, let's play the wedding game. But those sitting on the curbside say, no, that's a stupid game. It's it's too silly. I'm not going to play that game. 
So the children change their tactic. They go into their bin of dress-up clothes. They say, well, you know what? Let's play the funeral game. But this time the kids on the sidelines say, no, that's a stupid game. It's too serious. We're not playing. Jesus says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus is saying something really profound here. He understands the human heart really well, which means he understands our propensity to deceive ourselves. And I would flesh this out by saying that if you're looking for a reason not to believe, you can always find one. So why did the people reject the message of John the Baptist and Jesus? Well, on the surface of it, it was because John was too fanatical and Jesus was too loose. But according to what Jesus says here, the real reason people were rejecting Jesus was not because of John or Jesus, but because they didn't want to play any game but their own. See, that's the reason underneath the reason. Now, if you could have gone to those children in the marketplace and you were to ask them, hey, why aren't you joining in the game? They probably would have had an answer. Well, the reason I don't want to play the wedding game is because I'm not in a happy mood. Or the reason I don't want to play the funeral game is because I'm in a good mood and I don't want to play a downer game. I don't want to dance and I don't want to mourn. And they would be answering in a way that they thought was truthful. But those of you who have kids or have had kids, you know that the reasons kids give for not participating in a thing doesn't really get you to the core of the issue, right? I mean, you're 10 years old. You invite Sally over to play. She's as bored as you are, but you, you, as you try to figure out what to do, you, you suggest all these things. She doesn't want to do any of it because she has her own ideas about what she wants to do. I've watched that scene play out many times. What's really going on has nothing to do with this game or that game. What's really going on is who gets to be in control. So why didn't the people respond to John's message the way they should? Was it because he was too harsh? No, it wasn't. Why didn't the people respond to Jesus' message? Was it because he was too soft? No, it wasn't. You can always find a reason not to believe. And when you're trying to find a reason, any reason will do. That's what these guys do here, right? They have clear evidence standing before them in the person of this man who was formerly lame. They knew him. They knew he'd been healed. But they still would not believe. And I've talked with lots of individuals who've taken that same tact The reason I don't believe is because the Bible is filled with contradictions. I've got a Bible here. Show me where the contradictions are. Well, look, I'm not an expert in those things. I just know they're there. But I've got all these other reasons why I don't believe. This past summer, I read a book simply titled The Intellectuals. And the book basically features a a portrait of a number of people from history that we would consider to be towering intellectuals. These are individuals who've had a significant impact on modern thinking. Portraits of people like Karl Marx and Bertrand Russell and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And what the book does a really good job with is showing the connection between a person's worldview 
and their behavior. Now, we might all think, well, that's obvious. I mean, you behave in accordance with what you believe. That's not necessarily the way it works. What was true of lots of these individuals was that their behavior came first and their philosophy was developed as a way to justify it. It often works like that. You know, one example of this from history is Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley was considered one of the leading intellectuals of his day. He was the author of the dystopian novel, Brave New World. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in literature seven different times. In the 1920s, Huxley argued that we needed to get rid of religion because it was too emotional. He argued we should instead concentrate on science and reason. That's where we will find the real answers to life's problems. Now, Aldous Huxley died in 1963. He died the same day as C.S. Lewis and John F. Kennedy. But in the 1960s, Aldous Huxley was no, no longer saying science and reason were the place to find answers to life's riddles and questions. He actually looked at the state of the world, concluded science and reason have made a mess of this whole thing. Now he was saying we need to get rid of Christianity because it's too rational. He was now saying... Or advocating what we need is mysticism. We need emotionalism. He, he actually died while on an LSD trip. If you are looking for a reason not to believe, you can always find one. And that describes these religious leaders to a T. They could not deny what had happened, but they would not acknowledge it. Belief is not ultimately about seeing or hearing. It's a matter of the heart. Final thing we discover here is that the fear of man enslaves us, but the fear of God empowers us. Now, last week we looked at the fact that, at least on the surface of it, the, the, the leaders or the authorities had all the power. The deck was stacked in their favor, right? They had the experts, they had the numbers, they had the authority to do with Peter and John whatever they wanted to do. And we noted some reasons why it wasn't actually the case that they had the authority, but, but there's one reason here in these verses that we didn't talk about last week. Now, remember, the authorities are still not happy that Peter and John are going about teaching the people about Jesus. They still want that shut down. And so they tell them, look, you're not allowed to speak in this name any longer. And we'll, we'll get to what Peter and John see. But notice then what happens in verse 21. Verse 21 says, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. That little phrase right in the middle of verse 21 is interesting. It says they couldn't do what they wanted to do because of the people. See, they wanted to either keep Peter and John in prison or have them publicly flogged, but they couldn't because of the people. And this is something you see with lots of people in positions of leadership. It doesn't matter what their convictions might be. It doesn't matter what course of action they would like to take. They are paralyzed by the opinions of others. If the majority is in line with them, they'll do it, but they don't want to do anything that might jeopardize their standing in the court of public opinion. That's the fear of man. 
and that will enslave you. There's no freedom in that. Now, I talked about courage earlier. And I would just say that you will never have courage if your behavior is dictated by the fear of man. And if we're ever going to grow in courage, it means we have to care more about what God thinks of us than what others might think about us. Note the contrast between the authorities and Peter and John and who was free. Listen to verses 18 to 20 again. It says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now we're going to get into the issue of the proper relationship to human authorities when we get to chapter 5 because there we're going to read this. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So for now, let me just say that God ought to be the supreme authority in our lives. And look at what happens when that's the case. These lowly, undistinguished, unlettered fishermen stand before the leading authorities in Israel and say, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's the kind of boldness and courage that we need. That's the kind of boldness that can only come when we care more about what God thinks of us than we care what others think of us. And testifying to what we have seen and heard is what we're called to do. I mean, this is what Jesus commissioned us to do. Remember at the very beginning of this series, I told you, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the key verse in the book of Acts. And there Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. That's our calling. Now, I think we make all sorts of excuses for why we don't fulfill that calling, why we don't seek to share the gospel with others. Well, look, I'm not a natural evangelist. I'm not sure that I can answer all the questions a person might have. You know, I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. And by that, we mean someone saying, you know, hey, how do I become a Christian? But I wonder if the biggest reason is simply that we care too much about what other people might think about us. You know, there's a tradition among sports fans of certain teams that I actually think is, is quite funny. When the team you cheer for is really bad, like, you know, you've been a lifelong Cleveland Browns fan or something. I know they're better this year, but, but in general, that's been the sense with that team. Sometimes they'll pan the crowd with the camera, and what you'll see is you'll see people sitting in the stands, but they've got a paper bag over their face, right, with little <laughs> cutouts. And the idea is, look, I, I still want to cheer for this team, but I'm too ashamed to admit it. I think there are lots of paper bag Christians out there. I mean, the bag comes off when you go to church, but you pretty much wear it the rest of the week. I mean, you just want to be completely anonymous about this whole thing. And the reason you do that is because you're enslaved by the fear of man. 
You care far too much about what others might think and not nearly enough about what God might think. And I would just say this is not a trivial matter. Christian courage is not sort of an optional extra for the super spiritual. Jesus said it this way. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. In a similar way, the book of Revelation describes those who lack Christian courage with these words. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, as we read a list like that, I mean, it almost seems like, you know, one of these things is not like the other. I mean, cowardly is connected with murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and liars. But this is a serious issue that we either name the name of Christ or we run and hide from it. And I think we're called to this kind of courage, the kind of courage we see in Peter and John, the kind of witness that declares Jesus is the way to salvation. So let's pray to be strengthened in that courage. Lord, we do pray that by your spirit you would strengthen us, that we would find our greatest joy not in the applause of man, but in hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant from you. Lord, we pray that we would be people who have been so marked by your grace that when people encounter us and see us, even if there might be some hesitancy, some opposition, they would say, well, I I cannot deny this is a person transformed by the grace and love of Jesus. And God, we pray by, by your power we will become those kinds of people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.